Our brethren, turn your Bibles to James 5. As we press on here, trying to ask the question of the Scriptures to teach us to pray, James 5 is our text. And uh, I've been a bit conflicted on what to title this one because... As Sergio read it, maybe you noticed there that the example, at at least in part, the example in the text is Elijah. And so I first named this Elijah Teach Us to Pray, and then a couple days ago I changed it to James Teach Us to Pray. So I don't know what Aaron will title it when he posts it, but it's going to be one of those two. Um, And the reason is because although... Potentially, some of the things that we'll talk about have to do specifically with Elijah. Maybe not all of them do. Um, It's somewhat hard to determine. So that's why I ended up naming it James Teach Us to Pray, because they're all in the book of James, whether they all have to do with Elijah or not. And so um, that's what we're going to look at this morning. James 5, basically 13 through 18. And what I want to do, as I've sort of done every time, is just sort of pick a few particular things for us to learn in regards to prayer. And so there's, there's three points that I want to deal with out of this section in regards to how, what we can learn in prayer. The first one is that God hears the prayer of the righteous. And that comes, of course, from the end of verse 16. It says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. So that'll be the first thing. Second thing is God hears the prayer of fervency. And that's from verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And the last thing is that God hears the prayer of faith. Now this comes up a little bit in verse verse 15. It says there, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. So I want to deal with those three different ideas. God hears the prayer of the righteous. God hears the prayer of fervency. And God hears the prayer of faith. So let's begin with that first one. God hears the prayer of the righteous. Now, let me say this at the beginning, because this is extremely important in terms of understanding this verse properly and actually applying it to ourselves. What I mean when I say God hears the prayer of a righteous person, I'm talking about real personal righteousness, a righteousness that you yourself have as an individual. God hears the prayers of those who walk in real and personal righteousness. I'm not talking about here the righteousness that we have because we are unified with Christ and God sees us through Him. I'm not saying that that righteousness has no value in regards to our standing before God. It most certainly does. But what we're talking about in this verse and throughout the rest of the Bible that often comes up is that our own righteousness, our own sanctification, our own holiness plays a major part in whether or not our prayers are heard of God. And that's what's going on in this text. 
And I say that because there are different interpretations of this passage, one in which I have heard where the righteousness that they say that's being spoken of here, when it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working, that the righteousness being spoken of here is not our own righteousness, but rather it's a righteousness that we received from God as we became unified with Christ, when we're justified. And brethren, I think that that's a wrong way to view this passage. Let me give you an example. This is a quote from Franz Baker. He he wrote a book called Always Praying, and I think in, in, you know, for the most part, it's a good book, very useful book. I like it. But on this particular area, I think he's wrong. I very much disagree with him here. He says this. He, he begins to speak on this particular text in James, and he says, In this light, we must understand the word righteous. Without righteousness, prayer would be ineffectual. Righteous means to be in the right relationship to the Lord, so that the cause which brings us to the Lord is a right cause in His eyes. This will lead us to test ourselves. We must answer the question, what is my relationship to the Lord, and what are the self-interests the self of my requests? To do this, we need the convincing operation of God's Spirit. So, so far, so good. You might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? But he goes on. <clears throat> The righteous, now he's going to address this question. The righteous are not people who are better than others, except as God looks on them with favor, they have nothing. The word righteous certainly does not refer to a quality of man. The righteous are those who are clothed with grace. Therefore, no one is too weak or too unworthy to lay his need or the needs of others before God. Now, here's the deal. There is a fair amount of truth mixed in with that. Number one, it is true, undoubtedly, brethren, that unless God looks upon us with favor, we have nothing. That's true. Everything depends upon God, brethren, and we are no different in that game. We cannot forget, ultimately, God's sovereignty and His kingship in regards to our praying. But that's a separate, separate sermon, another day, not this one. Secondly, it is very true as well, that no matter how weak a saint may feel, they are never so weak that God is not willing to hear their cries. That's undoubtedly true, brethren. But the part that Franz says that cannot be the case is that righteousness does not refer here to the quality of an individual in terms of their holiness, or that there is no one who is unworthy to lay their needs before God. Brethren, this cannot be the case. In this text, we are most certainly confronted with the idea that personal righteousness is at play here. It is the prayer of the righteous individual that God hears. It is the prayer of those who walk righteously. And brethren, those who don't walk in righteousness, those who are not holy in their living, God is not going to hear their prayers. There are those, in fact, brethren, that are not worthy to come before the Lord because they are living in wickedness and sin. There's all kinds of passages in the Bible that speak about this. Go to Psalm 66. Undoubtedly, this one is probably well known by most or even all of you potentially. But Psalm 66, verses 16 through 18. It says, Come and hear, all you who fear God, 
and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, what does it say? The Lord would not have listened. You see this, brethren. The psalmist is saying this. If he had had iniquity cherished within his heart, God would have not heard his prayer. Righteousness, brethren. Without it, God is not hearing the prayers of his people. This is not just for lost people, brethren. The psalmist is saying this. If you as a Christian have iniquity hidden in your heart and you try to go into that secret place of prayer, brethren, God will not be with you there. If you have iniquity cherished in your heart and you try to go into the prayer meeting and pray, brethren, God will not meet with you there. You'll be like Israel going out to Ai by yourself and you will fall. Because you have Achans hidden down in your heart who have cherished up the, the devoted things. Brethren, don't think for a second that this doesn't affect you in your praying. It most certainly does. Even if, brethren, you have a standing before God because you are a Christian, where God sees you as righteous in Christ, if you are walking in sin, God will not hear your prayers. Two other passages here that clearly, brethren, clearly are addressed to Christians. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 7. Again, these are, these are well known. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Brethren, is it possible for your prayers to be hindered? Yes, yes it is. And it has to do with how you're living. Look at this one. Go to chapter 4, verses 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Brethren, explicit instruction given to us on our behavior. What we might call how we live in righteousness. And the purpose is so that our prayers are not affected, that our prayers are not hindered before God. Brethren, if you are not living a life of self-control, a life of being sober-minded, brethren, your prayers are going to be hindered. This is Scripture that's saying this. If you're not living, men, if you're not living with your wives in an understanding way and leading them properly, your prayers will undoubtedly be hindered. And you could turn this around as well. Wives, if you're not living with your husbands in a particular way, respecting them and honoring them, your prayers are going to be hindered. God does not give His ear to those who walk in unrighteousness. No matter what it is, brethren, whether you're married or single or not or whatever, whatever sin might grab a hold of your life, if a Christian is walking in it, they are far from God and He does not listen to their 
prayers. Listen to this. Isaiah 59, 1 through 2. Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, or his ear dull that he cannot hear, but, you see this? But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Brethren, you see what's being said here. It is not as though because of sin, God cannot hear your prayers. It is though because of sin, God simply does not hear the prayers of his people. He can do it, brethren, but he will not do it because sin creates a separation. There's a big giant brick wall between you and God. And that thing has got to come down before God is ready to hear his people. Righteousness, brethren, it's central to God hearing our prayers. But what's the, that's, I guess, if there's two sides to this, the bad side and the good side. The bad is if you're walking in sin, God doesn't hear you. But what's the good side? That's right. And he answers. Brethren, the, 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 great, the great promise of James 5 the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. But you know the good news of this passage is that the prayer of a righteous man or woman, one who is holy indeed, has great power and is quite capable of accomplishing mighty things. Again, this is everywhere in the Bible. Just two brief examples here. Psalm 34 Verses 15 through 18. The eyes of Yahweh are toward... What do you think it says? The righteous. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. The face of Yahweh is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, Yahweh hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. His ear toward their cry. Proverbs 15:29. Yahweh is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Brethren, God hears the prayers of the righteous. The eyes of Yahweh are toward the righteous, his ear toward their cry. When the righteous cry, he hears, he delivers them. Brethren, doesn't this give you encouragement to walk righteously, that God would hear your prayers and give you an answer to them? If I'm living in a way that, you know, you know what the, uh, the, the priests in the Old Testament, they had a turban that they wore, and there was a banner on the front of that turban. Anybody know what it said? Holy unto Yahweh. Not holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, but holy, H-O-L-Y. <laughs> holy, consecrated unto Yahweh. Brethren, when we're living in that way, when we are holy unto the Lord, consecrated unto Yahweh, God is with us, brethren, and He hears our prayers. It's a promise there in James. What a, what a glorious thing it is that if I'm walking in a way of holiness and righteousness and I bring my petition before the Lord, brethren, it has great power when it's working. It has great power to accomplish things. What an encouragement, brethren. What an encouragement. Let me give you another text here. John, or 1 John chapter 3. 
1 John 3, verse 22. It says, Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. What a hope and a blessing is found in this verse. What a promise that you can carry around with you in your pocket. Whatever you ask, you will receive. If, brethren, if we keep His commandments and we do what pleases Him. If we walk in righteousness, brethren, we have a text here that tells us whatever we ask, He's going to do for us. If we're walking in ways that please Him. Brethren, don't think for a minute like Asaph does there in Psalm 73. You know what he says? All in vain I have kept my heart pure. Brother, don't think like that for a second. That it's all in vain that you kept your heart pure. All in vain that you walk in righteousness. We just sang that song. Your holy hill, right? Who is it, brethren, that gets to that, that dwelling place of God? Those of clean hands, pure heart, who don't, don't uh, give themselves to bribes or speak falsely. They speak the truth. Brethren, this is walking in righteousness. And brethren, if you want to dwell upon that hill, you want God to hear your prayers, give ear to your petitions, and come and answer you, we got to walk righteously, brethren. That's how it's going to get there. Because again, brethren, the prayer of a righteous person is what has great power. So may God help us in that regard. God hears the prayer of the righteous. Now the next thing I want you to see is God hears, we find this also, James 5 again, God hears the prayer of fervency. You see this in verse 17 again. Elijah was a man with like nature, with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. So Elijah prayed fervently. God answered him. And I want to talk, we need to deal with this idea of fervent prayer because as many of you have undoubtedly heard, and I very much agree with the, the statement. Uh, I don't know if he was the first one to say it, but he's certainly the most known to say it. Leonard Ravenhill made the, the claim, God does not answer prayer. He answers desperate prayer. And brethren, I find that to often be the case in the scriptures and undoubtedly be the case in our own lives. But before we kind of deal with that, what I don't want you to do is think of fervency as some kind of like secret trick that once you kind of unlock, you, you have access to God in a way that others don't. It's, it's not some secret trick. It's not some secret passcode where you, you plug this in and you do this a certain way and somehow now you're fervent and now you get answers. That's not what we're talking about in regards to fervency. I, I also don't want you to think that fervency takes only one particular shape. Fervent prayer doesn't mean loud prayer. Fervent prayer doesn't mean crying prayer. Fervent prayer doesn't mean prayer on your face or prayer on your knees or prayer standing or prayer with your hands raised up. We talked about these different postures of prayer already before. That's not what fervent prayer means. Now, fervent prayer could be any of those things, but it need not be any of them at also. So it's important that we deal with this properly. 
Now, if we're going to understand what this actually means, what is said here, that Elijah prayed fervently, we have to actually deal a little bit with the translation of the text because it's a bit interesting. It may surprise you because it did me very much that fervent or fervently is not even in the original text, not even there. That word doesn't even exist in the original text. The, the original Greek text says something pretty interesting. It, what it says, the translation would be more like this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed in his prayers that it might not rain. That's what the original actually says. Fervency is not even in there at all. Now, for two reasons, we probably get the translation that we get here, that Elijah prayed fervently. One is because the repetition. When you find that in the Bible, there's, there's clearly emphasis being given. When it says Elijah prayed in his prayers, emphasis, repetition, they're recognizing something is being said here. Additionally, I don't think it's wrong to understand what's being said as he prayed fervently. So it's probably both of that. One, the repetition. Two, the fact that the translators are seeing what's going on in the text and seeing that, oh, the best way we can get this idea across is to say that Elijah prayed fervently. But, brethren, we do well, I think, to understand potentially what James originally had intended when he wrote this because he didn't necessarily write Elijah prayed fervently. He wrote Elijah prayed in his prayers. Now, as you hear that, undoubtedly some of you may see what is meant there, maybe some of you not. But brethren, undoubtedly even more so, most if not all of you know the reality that there are times when we can pray and not really be praying. There are times and there are other times where we can pray and really be doing much praying. Maybe that doesn't make sense yet. It will in a minute. <laughs> um, the language here is actually almost essentially the same as what you find in Romans 12. So I want you to look at this. Romans 12, 7 through 8. You have this section here. Paul's talking about different spiritual gifts and uh, how we ought to use those gifts. And he says, if service, so this is talking about this gift, right? If, the gift, if you have the gift of service, he says, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, and, and he goes on, right? But the point is, what Paul's trying to get us to see is that if your gift is one of service, then serve. Really do it. Really do things that serve the brethren. If your gift is one of exhortation, then exhort the brethren. Do that. Give yourself to it. You know, brother, it doesn't do any good to have a gift of teaching and don't do any teaching. But now while the section in James 5 isn't, you know, in regards to Elijah's prayer of fervency, he doesn't have to do with spiritual gifts, the language is very similar. So we could say, we could sort of add something here, similar to what Paul says in Romans 12, potentially. You know, he says, he says use your gifts if service in your serving. If teaching, in your teaching. If exhortation, in your exhortation. We might add, and in your prayers, really be praying. 
Really give yourself to real, diligent prayer, brethren. Give yourselves to it. Don't just, ha don't just have a time of prayer where you sit down and you're supposed to be praying over here, but rather, like James says about Elijah, really be praying in your prayers. Many of the Puritans, they would speak of this idea that we need to be praying until we begin to pray. And maybe most of you know what that means, even just from experience in your own lives as you find times of prayer. Brethren, are there not times when you, you set aside this time to pray and it, and it feels formal, it feels forced, it feels ungenuine, it feels difficult. And then there's other times where we go and we, we get before the Lord to pray and there seems to be a closeness to the Lord. There's a sense that He hears us. An ability to clearly articulate your words and rationalize your thoughts. Brethren, this is what we want when we come before the Lord. This is what James, I think, is getting at. Elijah, being a man like us, really knew what it meant to really pray in his praying. And that's what he did. He prayed in his prayers, brethren. He really prayed when he had times of prayer. And it brought about an answer from the Lord. But of course, we're still kind of left with the question, what does that even mean? <laughs> what, what does that mean? How do you define this kind of praying? Praying with fervency. Well, let me sidetrack here to give you an answer for a second. In uh, the 1960s, there was a... a uh, a judge, Potter Stewart, there was this big debate about what is um, obscene in to have things that would be obscene in the public realm. And he was asked, tell us your definition of what is obscene and should not be allowed in public. It's a really famous line. Does anybody know what he said? He said, I know it when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, isn't, that, isn't that, that idea, I think, fits well when we're trying to determine what is fervent prayer? I mean, it's not so easy to define it, nice borders, you know, tie a bow around it. Here's the exact definition of what makes fervent prayer. But, brethren, we know it when we see it. We know it when we hear it. So rather than trying to give you some kind of strict definition, what I want to do is show it to you a little bit in action, not in my own action. <laughs> I, want, I want to show you some other people in the scriptures here, some different examples of how people prayed with what seems to me to be fervent prayer. These people are praying in their prayers. First one, of course, brethren, we've got to begin with the Lord Jesus as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. So go over to Matthew 26. I have four brief examples here of praying with fervency. Matthew 26, 36 through 44. I'm going to read this section here. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. 
Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples. He found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the, ter for the third time, saying the same words again. And brethren, everything is here that you might expect if you're thinking of what makes fervent prayer. He's filled with sorrow, brethren. He's troubled. Sorrowful even to death, he says. And, and he prays. And you can feel the sense of his burden upon his soul. He's in desperation. He's looking for his father to act. He's insistent, bringing the same request over and over and over again. In Luke's account, you know what we're told in Luke's account? That he went and prayed more fervently. And it says that his blood became, or his, his sweat became like great drops of blood. Now listen, whether you want to take that literally or not, I think it's irrelevant. Because you get the sense of what's being said with those particular words. If I said to you, I was praying with a brother the other night, and he was praying in such a way that if he didn't get what he was getting from God, he looked like he was going to die. Now whether he was really going to die or not is kind of irrelevant. The point is, you know what I'm talking about. You can sense what was happening in that meeting as we were praying. And brethren, you can sense here what's happening with the Lord. You can sense it's His praying, His fervency, His desperateness. He's an example of us here as to what this looks like. What does it really mean to pray in your prayers, to pray fervently? The next one, Numbers chapter 12. This is a situation where Moses prays for his sister. You get this situation where <clears throat> Miriam and Aaron, they oppose Moses. They want to set themselves up as leaders of the people, so to speak. And God basically calls them all to come to the tent of meeting. God come down, comes down in a cloud and meets with these three. And then here's what happens afterward. You read this. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when it comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to Yahweh, Oh God, please heal her. Please. Now, again, although this is short, you can, get, you can feel the sense of this, can you not? The heart and the burden of Moses. Brethren, you can, you can, hear, you can 
You read them and you almost hear the words in your mind. Oh God, please heal her. Please. You can, you can get that sense of it, brother, when even just reading the words there. This is a man that has one request before the Lord and he is dependent upon God to do it. He has no other answer here, brethren. He's desperate. He's burdened. There's a sense of urgency in his prayer. Prayer fervency. The next one, Solomon's prayer for the temple. Go to 1 Kings 8. 1 Kings 8. I'm going to read uh, 22 through 29. Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Yahweh, God of Israel, there is none like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it to this day. Now therefore, O Yahweh God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. Oh, Yahweh, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you have listened to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Brethren, I... I love this prayer. There's, there's praise in it. There's glorification of God in it. There's a recognition of who God is as a promise keeper. And there's a, there's a calling upon Him to continue to be one who keeps His promises, His oaths, His covenants. There's humility in it. Verse 27, He says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the highest, the heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And then there's boldness in it. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Yahweh, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. And once again, you can, you can sense, brethren, the reality in this prayer. There's realness there. He's really praying in his prayers. This is a fervent prayer, brethren. The last one. 1 Samuel 1. Hannah's prayer. I'm going to read uh, <clears throat> 9 through 15. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of Yahweh. She was deeply distressed 
and prayed to Yahweh and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, and I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before Yahweh, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. <clears throat> but then can't you feel the sense in this woman, this burden of Hannah as you read this? She goes outside, she sits there on the steps of the temple. She's deeply distressed, says she weeps bitterly. As with others, you, you can feel the sense of it as you read it. You know there's a sense of urgency, a sense of necessity. And then we're told this at the end, I have been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. No doubt that's an adequate description of what's taking place here. And, and I, I quite like that phrase. If we're going to have any definition here of what makes fervent prayer, it might be pouring out your soul before the Lord. And this verbiage is used in other places in Scripture. I think it really carries what we're wanting to sum it up shortly, what, we're, what we want when we're talking about fervent praying, really praying in our prayers. Let me just give you, uh, listen to these. Lamentations 2.19 Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches, Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children. <clears throat> Psalm 142.1 With my voice I cry out to Yahweh. With my voice I plead for mercy to Yahweh. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before him. Psalm 62 8. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. But then pouring out your heart before God. May God help us, brethren, to be rid of formality in our praying. May he help us as though. Each and every time we come before Him, we're pouring out our soul before the Lord. That we're really praying in our prayers. It says here, I tell my trouble before Him. I pour out my complaint. Brethren, you know those words. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a dear friend, brethren. What a dear friend who comes to bear all our griefs and sorrows. And he says there, is there trouble anywhere? Are you weak and heavy laden? Take it to the Lord in prayer, it says. Brethren, can we find a friend so faithful who will all your sorrows bear? 
Any one of you in here would bear day by day every sorrow of everyone else in here? Not likely. But the Lord Jesus does. He bears them all, brethren. He, and he, he, he calls to you, come to me. Come to me. My yoke's light. Come to me, I'll give you rest. Brother, may God help us to pray in such a way where we are we're praying with fervency, we're pouring out our heart before the Lord. We're really praying in our prayers. Now the last thing here in James that I want to deal with is this idea that God hears the prayer of faith. Once again, in verse 15 of chapter 5, in speaking about praying over those who are sick, James says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now listen, I am not intending here to make any claims on God's prerogative to heal or not. I'm not even going down that road. I'm simply wanting here to address the aspect of faith in our praying. And brethren, clearly that's here. There's something here that we've got to get a hold of, brethren, that when we pray in faith, brethren, we can expect God to answer. That's biblical. And brethren, if we're going to be determined to see answers in our praying, the last thing we need is a bunch of caveats in our praying. We've now seen, I don't know how many, a bunch today, a bunch in the last two messages in regards to prayer. We've seen a lot of prayers in the Bible, brethren. And I don't know if you've noticed, but almost none of them, except for one example, and I wouldn't even put it in this category, none of them have a bunch of ifs in their praying. Lord, if you desire. Lord, if you want. Lord, if you will. Lord, if you can. Obviously, brethren, we have to pray in accordance with the Lord's will. Undoubtedly, this is true. This is biblical. But brethren, when you find people praying in the Bible, you do not find them saying things like, Lord, would you please do this? Unless, Lord, it's not your will, then don't do it and then just give us grace to be humble and recognize that you're not going to do it. You don't find people praying like that in the Bible, brethren. That's not biblical praying. That's not what you see these men doing and women doing. And some might think that praying that particular way, with all these caveats, Lord, if, Lord, if, Lord, if you're not going to do it, it's okay, that somehow that's praying in a way where we're trying to be reverent before the Lord. But brethren, I don't think it has to do with reverency. I think more often than not, it has to do with unbelief and doubt not trusting the Lord than it does with reverence. And you know well what the Scriptures say about those who would come to the Lord in prayer and then go away doubting. Just earlier, in the book of James, James chapter 1, in the, at the end of the book, at the, well, at the end of the book, we get the prayer of faith. And you know what you know we get to the front of, at the front of the book? The prayer of doubt is what you get at the front of the book. James chapter 1. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But, but, verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Brethren, you ever realize 
how strong this is of a statement. It's an incredibly strong statement to say that if someone comes in and they pray and they go away doubting, they ought not expect anything from God. That's a strong statement to make. But the scriptures, they can't be more clear. But then if we doubt, we are unstable, we are double-minded, we don't trust the Lord. You know what? God may grant our request despite our unbelief. But you have no reason to have assurance about any of that if we're going away doubting. Now, you've all heard me undoubtedly speak on this probably more times than I can count. Talking about faith and our prayers. Really believing the Lord, not doubting. But I do so because, brethren, I don't, I don't want you to feel. <laughs> I don't want you to feel as I have felt for so much time of my Christian life. That certain passages that are in the Bible, it's scripture, brethren, that certain passages in the Bible are meaningless. Or worse, that they're dangerous to believe. <gasps> you can't believe that. You can't believe that you can go to God in faith. Passages like this, Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Brethren, that's in the Bible. No charismatic, wild man made that up. That's scripture. Mark eleven twenty four is the verse. Passages like John 16, 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Brethren, ask, you will receive. Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. You see, brothers, a simple formula in Scripture that ought to help us genuinely come in faith to the Lord in our prayers. Could it be, brethren, could it be that we too have yet to ask anything truly in the name of Jesus Christ because we have not come and asked in faith? John brings this out in a way that I, I just, I love this verse. It's been a huge encouragement and a help to me over the years. 1 John 5, 1 John 5, 13 through 15. He says here, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything According to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Brethren, like I said, I have found this passage to be a huge encouragement to me over these years. What confidence, brethren, what confidence we have that we come to the Lord and we're seeking to ask and bring petitions to Him that are in accordance to His will. He hears us, brethren, and if He hears us, we know that we're going to get the thing that we just asked for. All the reason, brethren, to come in faith, all the more reason to really come with belief and trust, to come with promises, to come pleading God's character, God's attributes, to come pleading for His namesake and His glory to come bringing to Him His own word, to make our requests, and to believe, brethren, faith. Faith, brethren, we need it. May God help us to come in faith. So James, we've asked, teach us to pray. We saw first, God hears the prayers of the righteous. We saw that God hears the prayer of fervency. And now we see God hears the prayer of faith. 
Church, if we are, if we're gonna, if we're a people that are walking in righteousness, and in that righteousness we pray fervently, and in those fervent prayers, having been walking in righteousness, we really believe that God will give us an answer, brethren. God will come and be in the midst of His people, and He will give answers to our prayers. You can believe that. You can take that to the bank. Brethren, for faithful to do it, what a joy it'll be in the coming years to see those things. Let's pray.